Calvary? Okay, very good. Yes, I can hear you too. And uh, we'll get started. Well, good morning, Calvary. Welcome to Sunday School. Uh, it's kind of amazing that I'm talking to you today because of what happened yesterday. <laughs> Actually, in our area, the local power plant exploded, literally exploded. And there was a fire. Our whole, our whole uh, neighborhood is without power. But the Lord provided a friend who was uh, able to accommodate me here at 6 o'clock in the morning so that I can use his internet and I can teach you. So I'm in a slightly different location, but still able to teach you. And praise the Lord for that. Uh, we're doing part two of last week's lesson today. Technically, this is still lesson 11 in our Answers Bible curriculum, but we're going to treat it as lesson 12. We're talking today about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Recall that last week we talked about the ministry of John the Baptist, and we talked about the baptism of Jesus. We saw that God sent John, according to the scriptures, as a new Elijah to prepare the way for God's Messiah King. And John's message was one of sober repentance. God's promised kingdom, this is what John said, God's promised kingdom is about to come with both judgment and reward. So Israel and us today, we must turn to our king now while we can. Do not trust in your religious heritage or do not trust in mere religious ceremony. Only true repentance will protect a person, will protect you from being cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist very clearly taught that the one bringing the kingdom with all its cleansing, judgment, and reward would be the Messiah himself. It would be Jesus. And this Messiah was the one who appeared. Jesus came to John. He was baptized, not because Jesus needed to repent of sin or show he needed to be cleansed, but in order to fulfill all righteousness. And we explain that. In his baptism, Jesus identified himself with the sinful people that he came to save. And he pictured before them his being set apart as a cleansing sacrifice for their sins. In Jesus' baptism, we also saw the whole Godhead affirming Jesus as Messiah and Son of God and testifying of his perfect and righteous life. Now, immediately after Jesus' baptism, he goes into the wilderness to experience a time of testing. Why was this temptation necessary? What do these temptations show us about Jesus? Was Jesus really tempted in all the ways that we are? And should we follow Jesus' approach to dealing with temptation? Those are some of the questions we want to look at today. Our lesson is going to once again be our following our answers, I'm sorry, our inductive Bible study method. We're going to read the passage. We're going to make some simple observations on it. Try to answer more advanced questions more advanced interpretation questions, and then consider what is the application? What does God's Spirit want us to know and to do in our lives today? <clears throat> Let's pray before we continue. Our God, I thank you for your provision this morning. When you're in control of all things, you're in control of electricity, but I thank you how you've provided that I, I can still teach and that Calvary can still hear. pray that you'd help me, God, as I teach to speak as I ought, speak accurately, speak passionately, and I pray that your word would grip us as it was meant to, and that we would be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
So open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is page 959 if you're using the Pew Bible. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 is our text. It's where we see Matthew's entire account of Jesus' temptation. So let's read from Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Men shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Okay, now that we've read our passage, let's make some simple observations. Notice that Jesus does not wander off aimlessly into the wilderness. Rather, it's the Holy Spirit, the one that just came down upon him in his baptism as a, as a dove. The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And why? The end of verse 1 specifically says, to be tempted by the devil. Now, remember what we mean by wilderness. We're not talking about going to some idyllic natural space. A bubbling brook with forest shade, songbirds chirping away merrily. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a remote and barren place. We're talking about man versus wild type area. The wilderness is typically a frightening place in which it is difficult to survive, especially if you are alone. The word wilderness can also be translated desert. There's probably no food there, little shade, little water, if any. There are no people around, but there are wild beasts, deadly wild beasts. It may also be either very hot or very cold, depending on the time of the day. By the way, who else in the Bible was led by God through into and through a dangerous wilderness near Palestine? Say that again. Israel. The people of Israel. They were led into the wilderness. And how long was Israel in the wilderness? Forty years. And now this is also where Jesus goes. Jesus goes into the wilderness. And what does Jesus do there? He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Notice 40 appearing here. Now about this fast. What exactly did this fast consist of? Did Jesus totally abstain from food? 
We're not told. It could be that he did not eat at all, or that if he did eat, he ate very little. Why, though, do people typically fast in the Bible? What's one reason that someone fasts in the Bible? Yeah, to, uh, to pray, to focus on prayer, to be especially committed to prayer. How, how, what else? Yeah, Ron. Exactly. It's also an expression of sorrow and trouble. Um, it's not even so much as a, a thing you choose to do. It's something that you feel compelled to do. When people are so distraught, they don't even feel like eating. And so they fast and they often pray. But those are the two main reasons we see that in the Bible, to pray, to focus on prayer, and also to express sorrow or some kind of trouble. Now, Jesus does this for 40 days. Our culture has mostly given up the custom of fasting, so we don't really understand the impact of fasting for this long. But I think you can guess that fasting 40 days from food, if Jesus really ate nothing at all, that is very intense even life-threatening. Apparently, if you fast for a long time, after the first few days, you get over your severe hunger pains. Nevertheless, you weaken yourself by fasting. People have died by totally abstaining from food for a long period of time. Even just 21 days, some people, even in the modern day, have died due to starvation, heart failure, over, um, being overcome by sickness because your body is so weak, it is possible, though, to survive even a 40-day fast, and people, even in modern times, have done that. So if Jesus really ate nothing at all, which is the normal sense of the word fast, then Jesus' time in the wilderness was doubly dangerous, at least from a human perspective, to his life. He's in a very harsh environment, and he's very harshly treating his body. This leads us to one of the great understatements of Scripture. <laughs> if you go back into, I think it's a verse 2, the end of verse 2. After these 40 days, Jesus then became hungry. Okay, yeah, I think so. That makes sense. Before we move on, we should also note, who else in the Old Testament fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? Moses did. He actually did it twice. The first time he received the tablets from God on, the, on Mount Sinai, he fasted. But also, after Israel sinned with a golden calf, he fasted again. I'll actually read to you where we hear about that. Deuteronomy 9.9. 9. Actually, it's mentioned a number of times by Moses, but he reminds the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 9.9, 9, Moses says, When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which Yahweh had made with you, then I remained on the mountain 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. He says something again a couple of verses later, Deuteronomy 9.18. Moses says, I fell down before Yahweh as at the first, this is the second time he fasted, 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin." which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of, the, the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. Now, he's talking about their golden calf incident. Now, notice, Moses said he didn't eat or drink anything for 40 days. So how did Moses survive? If we go more than three days without water, we're pretty much going to die. 
So how did Moses survive? It had to be supernatural provision from God. But remember what we've said previously, I think in my sermon a couple weeks ago, God is the God of life. And when you're in the presence of God, you can't help but receive life from God. That is if you are one of his own. So as Moses was with God on the mountain, apparently God himself was sustaining Moses rather than normal food and drink. But back to our text in Matthew. Jesus becomes hungry. And notice how this detail sets the stage for what comes next. The devil appears. And notice in verse 3, he's called the tempter. This is one of many names given to the devil in scripture. We see three of them in our passage. He's called the tempter, the one who tempts. The devil, meaning the slanderer. And Satan, meaning adversary or enemy. So we see these titles for Satan. We also hear of three specific temptations. Luke, in his account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, he suggests that there are more than these three. But both he and Matthew only mention these three specific temptations. So they must be important. Let's see what they are. The first temptation is directly related to hunger. He's going to be tempted to create his own food. Notice. The tempter says, if you are the son of God. Now, the sense of this statement is not one of uncertain identity, rather of an accepted fact or an assumption setting up a conditional situation. Others have rendered the phrase, since you are the son of God. Or we could say it this way. Based on the fact that you are the son of God, why don't you alleviate your hunger, use your divine power, to command these nearby stones to become loaves of bread. That's what Jesus, I mean, that's what Satan says to Jesus. Now, as God, does Jesus have the power to turn stones into bread? He does. But notice the contrasting word that appears at the beginning of verse 4. But he answered and said, Jesus answered and said, and In his answer, he quotes from the Old Testament. Now, I would like you to keep your finger in Matthew, but turn back to Deuteronomy. We're going to actually look at a couple of verses from Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy in response to Satan. So Deuteronomy 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 3. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. We want to be aware of the original context of what Jesus is quoting. So look at verse 3. Jesus, or rather, Moses wrote, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. By the way, when Moses wrote these words to Israel in Deuteronomy, what was Israel about to do? They were about to go into Israel. They were in the wilderness, but they were about to enter Israel. And they were going to receive God's possession. Remember, he had given that land to them, and they were going to go conquer it. So Jesus says this to Satan, and Satan 
moves on to another temptation. Notice, the devil says he took Jesus to the holy city, meaning Jerusalem, and to the very pinnacle or roof of the temple. Now, how did that happen? How did the devil do that? Jesus is in the wilderness, and all of a sudden he's at the top of the temple in Jerusalem? Well, the text doesn't say how that happened. But <clears throat> considering the practical difficulty of transversing that distance and getting to the top of the temple quickly, Jesus appears to have been taken there supernaturally. But it's at this second location that we see the second temptation, a spectacular temple jump. Satan says, since you're the son of God, why don't you throw yourself down from this rooftop? And then notice Satan quotes the scripture. He quotes Psalm 91. And we'll make you turn there. Keep your finger in Deuteronomy and in Matthew. But Psalm 91 describes how God protects and vindicates the one who trusts in him, even the Messiah. So Psalm 91, verses 11 to 14, I'll give you some context to the original verse. Psalm 91, verses 11 to 14 says this. For he will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high, because he has known my name. <clears throat> so Satan quotes some of these verses to Jesus. But back in Matthew, notice Jesus' response. He says, on the other hand. So in this phrase, Jesus indicates that he affirms the words of Psalm 91. He's not saying that's wrong. He's, he acknowledges Psalm 91, but he indicates that there is something else that must be remembered. There are other scripture that must be remembered too. And Jesus, again, quotes a scripture himself. And again, it's from Deuteronomy. So if you're still in Deuteronomy, just turn two chapters earlier to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6.16 is what Jesus quotes. Where Moses wrote, Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Okay. Does anyone remember what happened at Massa? So whenever you hear the term Massa, or when you hear the term Meribah, think about Israel complaining about lack of water. That's what they did at Massa and Meribah. They said, there's not enough water. We're all going to die of thirst. Moses, you did this. God, you did this. Actually, we hear the account described for us in Exodus 17. And yeah, I guess you can turn there. Turn to Exodus 17. Exodus 17 Verses 1 to 7. This is where we hear what happened at Massa. And you'll notice that the word test comes up. Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel, journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of Yahweh, camped at Rephidim, and, or, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? 
why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? The, the terms Massa and Meribah, by the way, refer to quarreling. They mean contention. So we see at Massa, the Israelites tested God by complaining and by asking God to prove that he was really among them and cared for them before they would trust him. Moses tells the new generation of Israel, back in Deuteronomy 6.16, Do not test Yahweh as you did or as your forefathers did at Massa. And it's this verse that Jesus quotes to Satan. So Satan moves on, doesn't pursue that line of temptation. But there is a third. It says, again. We have a third temptation, but this one's a little different, you'll notice. So back in Matthew, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Luke, in his account, he says he showed him all the kingdoms in a moment of time. So... We should understand this to, again, be something supernatural happening here. It's not possible to go to a high mountain and see all the kingdoms of the world in the same moment. And to be able to see their glory. But Satan somehow is able to do that. He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He passes by Jesus' eyes, passes before Jesus' eyes, everything that is glorious on earth. And imagine what this consisted of. What is glorious about the world's kingdoms? Well, there are the great buildings, there are the armies in their splendid armor and martial array, there's great art, music, literature, theater, law courts, markets, ships, machines, festivals, parades, beautiful ladies, beautiful men, palaces, thrones, temples, sacrifices, goods of every kind. Everything that was thought to be beautiful or valuable in the world this is what Satan passes before Jesus' eyes. And Satan says to Jesus, and notice there is no, if you are the son of God here. Satan says, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And notice that Satan claims ownership of the kingdoms of the world. And the New Testament actually affirms that idea, at least in one sense. John 12, 31 in John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who is he talking about? He must be talking about Satan, the ruler of this world. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world. 
Of course, we know in another sense, Satan's not the god of this world. There's only one god. It's God. The true owner of the world and all the world kingdoms is God, and he will directly rule the world one day through his son. He will give the kingdom to his son. Revelation 11.15 says, this is Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So even though in one sense Satan is the ruler of the kingdoms of the world, in another sense it's God, and God will directly rule the world kingdoms one day. But Satan says to Jesus, you can have total rule of all the world kingdoms now if you worship me. Now notice the unique response of Jesus here. He says something different than he did before. He says, go, Satan. Get out of here, Satan. Get away. And why? Jesus again quotes the scripture. Each response, you'll see, you notice, has been from scripture. And again, he's quoting Deuteronomy. Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, whether the specific verse that Jesus quotes is not entirely clear, he may be paraphrasing one verse or two verses. Look at Deuteronomy uh, 6, verses 13 and 15. So back to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 13 may be the verse that Jesus has in mind, but I want you to see some of the context of the statement. Deuteronomy 6, 13 down to 15. Moses writes, you shall fear only Yahweh your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people, peoples who surround you. For Yahweh, your God, in the midst of you, is a jealous God. So you notice how similar that sounds to what Jesus quotes. There's another verse that's like it, just a few chapters later. Look at Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. Deuteronomy 10, 20. Now again, we'll look at a little bit of the context. Let's look down one more verse. So look at Deuteronomy 10, verse 20 to 21. Moses again writes, You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. So notice those two different verses, they emphasize two aspects of God's character. In chapter 6, he says, God is a jealous God. But in chapter 10, he says, God is your praise. He does so, Look at all the good things he's done for you. Therefore, fear God. Worship him alone. Serve him alone. So Jesus, either paraphrasing or quoting these verses or these two verses, it gives this answer, and it causes Satan to leave. Though Luke says in his account, Luke also records about the temptations, Luke chapter 4, verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And that statement is significant because it suggests there were more temptations than these three, and that temptations continued after this time. But the devil leaves for now. Back in Matthew, the last thing we want to see, you can actually uh, leave Deuteronomy now. Back in verse 11, you notice the word behold in the middle of the verse. The, the hold draws our attention to the action that follows. 
And what is the action? Angels. Angels come and minister to Jesus. They serve Jesus. Angels from the Father come at the end of this time of temptation to minister to the Son. Okay, so we've made our observations. Let's now use our observations to answer interpretation questions. We've got a number of them. First, why did Jesus fast while he was in the wilderness? We mentioned why people normally fast, but then let's also think about what what is happening to Jesus and what is about to happen to Jesus. Danny. Exactly, yeah. I think that's definitely part of the answer. He's about to experience or is experiencing temptation. So if he, he needs to go to the Father, he wants to depend on the Father via prayer, via fasting. But that's not the only thing. What else is about to happen? Yeah, Rob. Hmm. hmm, that's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, we will talk about the connection with Israel uh, a little bit later. Was fasting specifically done so that he could literally fulfill man shall not live by bread alone? I'm not sure. Certainly it is consistent with what we just said about Jesus depending on the Father, especially through time of testing, which Israel did not do. They were not depending on the time of, or the not depending on the Father through testing, but uh, I'm not sure if I would say that Jesus did that specifically to literally fulfill that word about not depending on bread. The other thing I was going to mention, though, is that beside, besides temptation, Jesus is about to begin his ministry, and that would be another reason to spend time with the Father, to fast, to depend, to pray, to focus. And so those probably all play into Jesus' decision to fast while he's there. Another question, speaking of fasting. Why would it have been wrong for Jesus to turn the stones into bread? In the back, yes, I think Roy. Hmm. Okay, those are some good answers, Roy. Yeah, certainly there's the, if Satan suggests it, could it be good? <laughs> you know, are, are you listening to Satan's counsel? Isn't that a form of a fr- affirmation of him? Perhaps there's some element of that. But I think you're totally right to say that 
it would not, it is not the Father's will for Jesus to create bread out of stones. And so if he were to do so, he would be doing his own will and not the Father's will. He would not be fulfilling all righteousness. Because we must understand, it's not wrong necessarily for Jesus to eat. And if God so willed it, it wouldn't be wrong for Jesus to turn stones into bread. But the Father had apparently not given Jesus permission to do that. We see throughout his ministry, Jesus, as the God-man, was intensely dependent on the Father, looking to do the Father's will and the Father's way in every instance. And we hear this directly in the book of John. John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, John 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says just a few verses later in John 5.36, John 5.36, For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus was looking only to do the Father's will, and that included when and how he did miracles. The Father had not given Jesus permission to turn stones into bread for himself. So if Jesus did so, he would have been seeking his own will and not the Father's. He would have been going outside God's plan. And lest one say, wait, Jesus was hungry and in great need. Surely the Father would permit a little supernatural bread making? Surely a tiny compromise would be okay for the sake of protecting himself from starvation. But this is why Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus affirms that he needs and depends on something much greater than bread or any kind of physical provision. Jesus needs and depends on God and depends on God's word. After all, God controls all things. God provides all food. Therefore, Jesus can confidently serve God and wait on the Father to provide Jesus food in God's way and in God's timing. Jesus doesn't have to violate the Father's will for, the God, for God to provide. And isn't this exactly what Jesus says later in Matthew 6? You're familiar with that passage. Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33. Jesus says, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, yeah, Roy.
Yeah, that's a great observation, Roy. Thank you for that. Yeah, we do see a connection between Adam and Eve's failure when they did eat and Jesus's success when he does not eat. That's a great, that's a great point. In sum, with, for this temptation, Jesus chose to trust the perfect provision of his father rather than go outside the father's will to miraculously provide for himself. And by the way, how did God vindicate Jesus's trust regarding bread? How does the passage end? With angels coming to minister to Christ. And I imagine, though it's not, it's not explicitly stated, they gave him food. The Lord did provide. Or if they didn't give him food, they, they ministered to his needs in some way so that he was provided for. The father knew what he was doing, and the son trusted, and the father vindicated. Now, the second temptation. Why would it have been wrong for Jesus to throw himself off of the temple? We know the answer is in some way having to do with testing. I would characterize it in this way. It is wrong to test God's promises with sin or unbelief. It is wrong to test God's promises with sin or unbelief. As the Messiah, Jesus could have expected God's provision and protection until Jesus accomplished his earthly mission. Even if Jesus were to do something dangerous, which he does throughout, actually, his ministry. By just preaching the word, he is putting his life at risk. But that is the Father's will. And if service to the Father requires danger, then so be it. But if something is dangerous that is not part of the Father's will, then the wise and righteous person will avoid that danger. Such a man should not say to himself, well, God promised to protect me, so I don't have to be careful. No, this is what it means to put the Lord to the test. To use the promises of God as an excuse to disobey God or act foolishly. To make this idea clearer, imagine a Christian student who has an exam coming up. He does not feel like studying. So he says to himself, well, God's word says that God will provide for all my needs, and I should not idolize grades. Therefore, I'll just trust God to provide, and I won't study. Well, this is foolishness and sin. Using God's promises to disobey him and to not work hard for his sake. Such a student will likely be rudely awakened by God's good discipline via poor grades. But another way, excuse me, <clears throat> another way to test the Lord is to refuse to obey God until he proves himself. This would be like Jesus saying, I'm not really sure if God will protect me. So let me do something crazy to find out. To return to my analogy of a Christian student, this would be like that student saying, I'm not really sure if God will take care of my grades. So until I see that provision, I'm not going to let go of my anxiety. And I'm certainly not going to give up any of my time to serve others. I need to study. Such thinking, this kind of, I won't believe it until God proves himself, and may even masquerade as piety. I want to believe the Lord, so I'm giving him the opportunity to make me believe, to prove himself. But no matter how you look at it, this is still sinful and foolish. 
God has already done more than enough to cause us to believe. His word is sure and does not need testing. Now true, it is encouraging and faith-building to see God keep his promises. And in a sense, God does ask us to test him with belief. Believe me and see if I will not keep my promises. But notice the difference. The starting stance must be belief, not unbelief, when it comes to assessing God's promises. Let God vindicate your faith, not shame your faithlessness. Certainly, Jesus would not have been righteous to express unbelief in his Father's provision as if the Father's promise of protection needed testing. Therefore, in sum, when tempted in this way, Jesus chose not to let the promises of God become excuses for Jesus to be unfaithful to God's will or to test God's promises via unbelief. Now, the third temptation is the most explicit in our passage. There's no greater rebellion against God than to directly worship Satan, the enemy. And Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. But remember, the Father has made a similar promise to the Son. The Father will one day give all rule on earth to the Son. Even the Old Testament prophets said that. But what does the Messiah's receiving the kingdom from the Father require that receiving kingdoms from Satan does not. Obedience to what extent? All the way to death on the cross. To receive the kingdom from the Father, Jesus must first go to the cross. Satan doesn't require that. But the Father does. As other preachers have noted about this third temptation, Satan offers Jesus exaltation without humiliation, power without suffering the passion, and the kingdom without the cross. But in Jesus' final response to Satan, Jesus affirms that God alone is worthy of all worship and service, even the worship of obedience to death, humiliating death on a cross. God is worthy of all that. Satan is not. Like Deuteronomy 6 and 10 say, God is a jealous, fearsome God, but also a generous God full of love. Therefore, to such a worthy God, Jesus will cling, but not a deceiver and slanderer like Satan. So when tempted this third and final way, Jesus chose, chose to trust his gods, his great gods, perfect way of reward and exaltation rather than to look for indulgence or reward outside of God's way. Now, think about these three temptations. What do they all have in common? Or what's basically at the root of each? Right, it's about trust or doubt. Will Will the Messiah believe God? Will he trust God? Will he trust his promises? Will he trust his word? And of course, Jesus does. All of these basically, most basically, are tests of whether the Son believes the Father. Now, related to this, 
Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. But if you think about these temptations, none of them sound all that similar to our own, at least on the surface. I mean, when's the last time you were tempted to turn stones into bread with divine power? Or to jump off the temple and be caught by angels? Or to worship Satan and receive all the world kingdoms? We're not tempted that way. And where are the temptations that we do experience? For instance, there's no mention anywhere here or in any part of the Gospels of Jesus being tempted towards sexual sin. But that's a temptation that many Christians face every day. So how can the words of Hebrews 4.15 be true when his temptations look so different from ours? Yeah, Roy. Yeah. Yeah, you hit it exactly, Roy. The essence of the temptations Jesus experienced is the same as the temptations that we all experience. All sins are basically various versions of do you believe God or not? Do you believe and worship God or not? So even if we're not tempted exactly as Jesus was, or even if he is not tested, tempted exactly as we are, he was tempted in the same kind of way. And this is also why, by the way, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is true. You probably know that verse. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. But we want to say in response to that verse, but you don't know what it's like. My temptation is unique. It's especially strong. I can't deal with it like any regular sin. Well, it's true that we are tempted in various ways, and we are prone to more sin than others based on uh, various factors. But God's Spirit reveals that every temptation we experience is common to all men. All sins are basically different versions of the same unbelief and idolatry. Therefore, the righteous alternative is essentially the same to believe in the word of God, and to trust his word. To illustrate this, why shouldn't you sin sexually? Because God is worthy of your purity, and you can believe his word, both on the blessedness of his pure way, and the curse of immorality. Why shouldn't you sin through anger? Because God is worthy of your trust, so that the loss of any good, any worldly good, should not enrage you, or make you bitter. Moreover, you can Trust in God's ultimate justice. His perfect vengeance will prevail in his own timing. These same concepts apply to Jesus' temptations and the temptations of all men. But Jesus would not deviate from God's will 
because Jesus believed that God is worthy of total worship and that God's way is trustworthy. To underscore this point, and Roy, I think maybe you were alluding to this, some have noted that Jesus' three temptations seem to parallel what John says in 1 John 2.16. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. True, there does seem to be a kind of parallel between these three types of things in the world and what Jesus experienced. Though I think maybe different theologians line it up differently. In my view, the lust of the flesh corresponds to Jesus' temptation toward hunger and fulfilling that hunger outside of God's will. The lust of the eyes to Jesus' sight of all world kingdoms and the boastful pride of life to Jesus' temptation to test God by jumping off the temple. For multiple reasons, then, we can't affirm the words of Hebrews 4.15. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. But that means we can claim the comfort of that verse, as well as the following verse, verse 16. Together, the two verses say, and now I'm quoting directly, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus understands, not simply as an omniscient God, but as one who has experienced temptation. We noticed that Jesus responded to each temptation by quoting Scripture. This does not mean, understand, that the words of Scripture themselves have a special power against temptation as if you could chant them to yourself and suddenly all the temptations would cease. Yet, clearly, Scripture is important for dealing with temptation. How is Scripture important? Yes, Dwayne. Right, it does uh, show us the way of escape. Can we explain what that way is or would be in each situation? I mean, the essence for every temptation is going to be the same. What is the way to escape the temptation? It is going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it starts with believe God. But how are you going to believe God? Well, you have to believe what he said. How are you going to believe what he said? Well, you have to know what he said. You see, it's not that the words of Scripture in their utterance is powerful, that the, the literal sounds of the, the words, even in our translations, are powerful. It's that the truth of Scripture, as expressed in the words and in their context, is powerful. Because when we bring back to mind the truths of Scripture, and when we believe them, and when we take action consistent with that belief, we will escape temptation we will successfully stand. The word reminds us of the truth. We can believe and stand on that truth and then do what that truth tells us to do. For example, if you are tempted toward anxiety, do not merely recite to yourselves again and again verses about anxiety as if that will deliver you. Rather, 
Recall the scriptures in their context. Ask yourself whether you believe them and why you should. The scripture lays out arguments. And then, as you allow yourself to be persuaded by the scripture, reminded of what, reminded of the truth of it, then take action based on that belief. And when it comes to anxiety, such action will include refusing to keep thinking about those negative things, those potential negative outcomes to an upcoming event. Isn't that what Jesus said? Take no thought for your life. In the sense, don't keep thinking about those things that will worry you. Rather, leave it with God. Now, all this means, as you can gather, something basic about the Bible. If you're going to follow Jesus' example when it comes to temptation, that is, if you're going to recall the scripture, affirm your belief in it, and act accordingly, what do you first need to do? You've got to read it. You've got to learn it. You've got to make sure you understand it. If you don't know the scripture, you're like a soldier, unfamiliar with his battle equipment, or even totally lacking it. How well can you expect to fare in the battle? And don't think that after reading something once in the Bible, you don't need to read it again. We are forgetful people, and our old nature, our old sinful nature works against us. We must constantly be renewing our minds in the word. We must keep our proficiency at a high level so that we can stand against our wily opponent. And remember, Satan can even twist scripture to encourage sin. That's what he did with Jesus. And he, he and his evil ones, and even our own flesh, they will twist scripture in order to affirm sin. All the more reason for us to know the word better. So we can spot teaching and thinking that abuses God's truth and leads us into sin. So we need to know the word. We do want to take the approach that Jesus did. But we now come to our final set of interpretation questions. Why is all this important? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. But why? Why did the Spirit take Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness in the first place? And <clears throat> why did it take place when it did, right before Jesus' official ministry begins? Clearly, this event is important. But why? Well, I believe the reason is because of what this event shows us about Jesus. Yes, there is something to be said about following Jesus' example, but that's not the main point. It's about showing Showing us who Jesus is. Consider, Jesus experienced temptation just like all men. What does this affirm about Jesus' nature? He is a man. He truly is a man. And we need that if we're going to have a sympathetic high priest. However, unlike man, and especially unlike the first man, as Roy was saying, when Jesus is tempted, he does not sin, but he perfectly trusts God. Every time, every temptation, he succeeds. What does this show us about Jesus' nature? He's divine. He's not like a normal man. So the first part that he experiences temptation, we say, oh, he's a man just like us. 
But then we look at the second part that he succeeds in temptation. We say, he's not a man like us. He's God. These two facts emphasize how fitting Jesus is as the Savior. He is a man like us, yet he's a man who is not like us. He is truly righteous, and he perfectly trusts God. Only such a one could be God's Redeemer and perfect sacrifice for sin. Only such a one could function as the new and perfect Adam to redeem believers as a new head and representative. Moreover, consider the many connections in this passage between Jesus' experience in the wilderness and Israel's. Just as Israel was tested for 40 years in the wilderness before entering God's land, so is Jesus tested 40 days in the same wilderness before returning to Israel. But as we've already noted, what is the main difference between Israel's testing and Jesus' testing? Exactly. Jesus succeeds where Israel fails. Read the Torah, and again and again you'll see Israel failing to trust God. Even when a new generation rises up to enter the land, Moses tells them, you are yet uncircumcised in your heart, and you will later rebel against God. Which, of course, they do. And we saw that. Contrast this with Jesus, who not only perfectly obeys God when tempted, but even quotes the scriptures that were given to Israel while in the wilderness. He did, he heeded the word that they would not. He treasured it, though Israel did not. So Matthew shows us that Jesus is the righteous Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. The one who will do all of the Lord's will, who will establish justice, who will perfectly trust in his God. Jesus is Israel's fitting representative, whose righteous life will provide the once-for-all sacrifice to rescue his people from sin. Jesus is everything God always expected Israel to be the one who will actually make the redeemed remnant of Israel acceptable to God. And uniting these two things then, we know Jesus' work wasn't just for Israel, but for all who might be grafted in to the tree of faith of Abraham. So to sum up this last section, what we see here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right before it begins, is a clear testimony of Jesus' appropriateness as God's Savior and Messiah. Jesus succeeds where Israel and ultimately all mankind fails, and he is able to offer himself as an acceptable representative and sacrifice for all who believe in him. Was this the end of Jesus' temptations? Surely not, as Luke indicates. But this specific period of temptation in the wilderness sets the tone for Jesus' whole ministry. Jesus went to spiritual battle with the devil in the desert, and he came out the unquestioned victor, just as he would do through his whole ministry and as he would do at the cross. Truly, we should note, even though the choice was given to Jesus to sin, he could never have actually sinned. He is God. After all, it is not in God's nature to do anything less than to be 100% holy and perfect. So though the temptation was presented to him, he was not swayed even for a moment to sin against the Father, to sin against himself. How good it is that God appointed such a perfect one to be our advocate, to be our representative, and to be our high priest.
we're basically out of time. If you have other questions or comments, please email me. I want to leave you with just a few thoughts of application. Already in this lesson, you should have noted several avenues of application, but let me just mention a few things. How can we apply today's lesson? Well, first, we need to learn from Jesus' responses to temptation. Do we affirm what Jesus affirmed, that we need God more than any temporal need or desire to be fulfilled, that we're willing to wait until God fulfills it, we're not going to go outside his will? Do we test God with unbelief, using his promises as, as an excuse to sin against him or to be negligent? For instance, does God's sovereignty and salvation lead us not to evangelize? That's testing the Lord. God's promise is meant to encourage us to be obedient, not excuse our disobedience. Do we look forward to God's reward at the end of all our labor and suffering? Do we believe that God is worthy of worship, worthy of enduring any kind of suffering? Or do we want to take the rewards without suffering, the or suffering and being obedient? When encountering temptation, or even when thinking about where temptation might appear, do we go to the word? Do we stand on the truth of the word? Or do we stand on something less stable? Christian tradition, man's wisdom, our own feelings and impressions. Do we know God's word? Do we regularly expose ourselves to it? Do we study it? And when tempted, do we recite the scripture like an incantation? Or do we actually believe it and allow it to inform how we should act? Do we see the temptations we experience as common to man, even common to what our Savior experienced? Do we therefore take hold of the resources, the common resources God has given to his people to overcome temptation? The word, prayer, the people of God. Do we go to Jesus as a sympathetic high priest? Or do we shut out all help, even from the Savior, Savior insisting no one else can know what it's like? So we have to learn from Jesus' responses to temptation, but we also need to trust in Christ as our perfect representative. Jesus succeeds where all of us have failed. Have we recognized that? Have we repented before God then, trusting in Christ to be our righteousness and the only sacrifice that can satisfy God's wrath and reconcile us to God? Do we live a life of repentance marked by increased progress and sanctification as evidence we have believed Jesus. That's it for this week. Next week, Jesus' ministry officially begins, and we see the calling of Jesus' first disciples. Let's close in prayer. God, I thank you for this word. It is a great word. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the victor, succeeding where all of us have failed, becoming a new head and representative for your people an acceptable sacrifice. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for being so great. Help us in our weakness. You understand, but you also um, provide the promises and the way of escape. So Lord God, let us escape to you. Let us trust your word. Spirit work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome. See you next week.